one again. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Hope you all had a good day. I did. Been blessed by the prayer effort this week. I've been places where uh, there hasn't been much praying and you really see an evidence of that. And I've been places where there's been more emphasis in prayer and I've sensed that this week. And there's also a, a blessing and a result that comes from that and I invite you to keep doing it. Appreciated the song that was sung this evening. These little children had some profound things to, to sing and uh, the message was quite clear. Before we begin our message tonight, I'd like to invite you to bow our heads together. We're going to have a word of prayer, and we'll begin our service tonight. Our message. Let's pray. Father, we approach you. You are a high and holy God, 
And thank you for making a way that we can know you. And thank you for revealing yourself to us. And Lord, we need you tonight in deep ways that we don't even fully recognize. And for those needs and also the ones we do recognize, I pray that you might meet with us and show us the way and teach us things and help us to walk with you. We want to give your spirit full permission and access to our lives and our service and our hearts. We invite you to do your work among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As believers, we do things that people around us would find quite strange. Uh, one thing we do is sit in church a lot, and other people look on and say, what a boring thing to do these lovely spring evenings. You're sitting in church. We give away our money. Uh, some people look at that and say, there's so many more exciting things you could do with that. Why would you give it away? We dress so strangely. Uh, I was out in L.A., and we stopped at this... Uh, I guess boys' home. There's an older, older teenage boys that live there. And one young man was fairly talkative, and he came up to us after a while, after chatting. He said, I just can't get over this. You, you ladies dress like the 18th century, but you wear such modern shoes. Nike and Reebok and all these other things. And he was impressed by that. Uh, we do without things that other people wouldn't know what to do without. Uh, television and um, places we wouldn't go. Well, that was a reality even back in Peter's day. Peter said... Uh, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Even back then, there was differences. And back then, there was uh, a distinction. And people looked on and said, you're different. You don't do things the way we do, and you're strange. And I believe all these restrictions or differences or distinctions really would have no basis or make no sense or have no merit unless it's part of a larger understanding of, of who we are and what we're called to be and and why we do these things. Unless these things are rooted in a deep and true spiritual life, they're really pointless. And uh, unless they're expression of kingdom-mindedness, kingdom they really have no end uh, in themselves. When Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer, it would be an interesting study to take this, this prayer phrase by phrase. There's messages in every phrase you run into there. Jesus said first, Our Father which art in heaven. And we talked about that the first night. The immensity and the fatherhood of God. It's both included in that first phrase. The next phrase is, Hallowed be thy name. And I believe that has a lot to do with us hallowing and sanctifying and lifting up the name of God and how we can and may not hallow it always. Then the third phrase that we come to is, Is thy kingdom come? And when Jesus prayed that prayer, Thy kingdom come, what did he mean by that? And what, how, how would it be answered? If Jesus would have described to us how he expected that phrase and that prayer to be answered, what would he have shared with us? I'd like to talk about that a little bit tonight. The first evening we talked about the immensity of God and God's nature and God's expanse and his limitlessness. And somewhere in history, I guess pre-earth history, I don't know when it was, somehow, sometime heaven was created. I believe what God did was surround himself with a society that reflects his own nature, his own being. And I can imagine the beauty of that place, the perfect worship and the perfect order there and, and the peace in a place like that. Can you imagine a society completely under the control of God's uh, personality, his character, his authority? Imagine a place where God's character is the law. We talked about God's character, many things good things about God, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his long-suffering, his, his peace. Imagine a society like that. Nothing out of place, no chaos, uh, no confusion, perfect love there. There's nothing there that would cause grief or destroy or harm another person, an atmosphere of compassion. Can you imagine a place where selfishness is so unheard of that every action would be motivated by concern for another person's well-being uh, because there's a perfect sense of selflessness. Uh, perfect holiness. Can you imagine living in a place where there's no moral sin? No need to guard your eyes or guard your thoughts or be careful uh, where you look. It's a perfectly sin-free place. A place where God's will is so completely carried out there's no rebellion. There's no lifting a finger against his authority. For God's spirit is like the atmosphere. It's perfect peace and harmony and love. 
perfect provision. I believe that's the society that surrounds wherever God is. That's where God is. Can you imagine living there? A place where children could walk streets with no fear. Uh, no locks on any door. You can leave your keys in your car. I guess you do that here anyway, but uh, some places you wouldn't. Uh, no need for bank vaults. No need for... There's no competition there. No competition between my business and your business, my garden and your garden, my family and your family. It's perfect oneness and peace and harmony. We call that heaven. It's the absence of a human nature, fallen nature, and the presence of the perfect character and outworkings of God's character, removal of the curse. We call it heaven. I believe Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven, where God is king and this, this realm of God's influence. I believe that's the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why is repentance key to the kingdom of heaven? I believe it's key because this new kingdom is so incompatible with our normal way of living. The new kingdom that was coming is totally incompatible to a fallen nature. It's so different. Its aims are different. Its conclusions are different. The way it's lived out is so different. And if we want to be a part of that kingdom, something has to happen to the old life or we can't be. It's a new existence, a new allegiance. And Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth that is in, is in heaven. Now what was He offering? How would that be answered? I think sometimes of a verse back in Deuteronomy, I'd like to look at that with you. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 through 21. These are words to the children of Israel as he was giving them his law. He said, Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children, in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. And I get a picture here of these people receiving the law of God, and God telling them, if you take these laws and pay attention to them, and abide by them, and live by them, and come under them, and under their authority. The result will be that your days will be something like the days of heaven on earth. And I believe, because of the context, he's saying that you'll live long in the land, because uh, that's part of what is promised. And there were times they did not follow these instructions. They were cast out of that land. But I love this picture. Your days will be as days of heaven upon the earth. I believe that there is a sense in which this can be true. I believe the sum of Jesus' teaching is how men here on the earth, like you and me, can come under heaven's influence and heaven's authority and uh, be part of the kingdom of heaven even while we're living on this earth. And I don't believe that the kingdom of heaven is something that is, is going to happen sometime. I believe the kingdom of heaven has happened and is happening and we can be a part of it. We're called to be. The essence of the Christian life boils down to this, doesn't it? That God's will is my mandate. God's word is my law. God's character is my standard. God's thoughts need to be my worldview. God's priorities need to be my priorities. His choices need to be my desire. That's how we live in this kingdom of God. And what a privilege to be counted as a, as a part of that kingdom, a citizen of that kingdom. Now, we still live in a corrupt world. We still suffer the consequences. Sin is all around us. We're not exempt from that. There's still sickness and health problems and danger and things happen to us as God's children. We won't be free of that until we're home for real. But, but I believe among ourselves, we relate one to another in, in the spirit of the kingdom of Christ and these new laws and these new relationships and the new way of this new worldview that we have. We can experience something of the influence of heaven here in our church settings and in our communities as we relate to each other. And that's part of what the kingdom of God is. I met a man at the yard sale up in Floyd. My wife met him first and his wife spoke Spanish so they got to know each other a little bit. And he uh, 
she invited him to church, and uh, we were having a revival, and so he came. And he likes to visit different churches. He likes just for curiosity's sake to visit, but we had a very interesting speaker at that time, and uh, he came and was struck and paid attention and came back and came back, and even after revivals, he would come sometimes, our fellowship meals, and visit in some homes, and I just saw him again this last week. He had a computer to give away, and he sells things on the internet, but he told me this. He said, uh, I, my business is selling on the internet. He has piles of stuff he sells and uh, makes his living that way, but he says he's trained himself to be suspicious because not a week goes by with somebody not trying to take advantage of him or pull something across on him. He said, I've trained myself to be suspicious and wary because I know it's out there, but he said, you people are different. You're such trusting people. I guess almost to the point of being naive sometimes, but we're such trusting, open people. And he envies that. He wishes he could experience something like that. And I believe it has a lot to do with the fact that we're living under heaven's influence, under heaven's authority, and these are part of the outworkings of that. As we come under God's laws and relate to each other on that basis, it creates a beautiful society. I believe there's an unseverable link between the kingdom in heaven and the kingdom of heaven here on the earth. It's almost like when Jesus came to create a kingdom here on the earth, he was creating an extension of home. It's almost like a branch office. It's almost like a, uh, an embassy. It's something of the same nature that's being planted here. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the church of Christ is supposed to be like, and we get to be part of it. And I'm so glad to be part of that. The kingdom of heaven was one of Jesus' favorite topics. He taught about that probably more than any other subject. I guess everything he taught was related to that. He came to establish it. He taught some very interesting things about this. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, something very, very small that when it's planted has the power to grow into something beautiful and overshadowing and large. He said it's like leaven. You take leaven and hide it in the dough somewhere out of sight, and it can begin to change things and and make things grow and happen in there. And that's how, that's how the kingdom works. It's the influence of, of Christ on the heart that changes the life. And somehow from person to person, this thing has grown to what it is today. It's like treasure in a field, he said. So valuable and so precious that people are willing to give up everything they have to, to possess it, to own it, to be part of it. It's like a king that invited wedding guests when the first ones didn't come, he sent out this invitation forcefully. He said, go and, and make them come in. Get the blind and the halt and the lame and, and make them come in. The king's table is open for every man and woman and child out there. This kingdom that was foretold long ago was often referred to in the Old Testament. And when, uh, when the Jews thought about the kingdom, they probably had a different concept. And will we see it today? They probably imagine how it would be. And, and one of the prophecies about this kingdom came in an unexpected way. In the uh, Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream. This is the time of Daniel. We referred to that last night when he dreamed this dream of this image. And uh, after Daniel told him the vision that he had forgotten and explained what it mean, meant, he sort of understood it. But the vision was simple. He saw this vision of this image and uh, the head was gold, the shoulders and arms were of a different material, and then it was brass, and then it was iron, and then it was iron and clay at the toes. And then while he was watching this thing, amazed at its size, and this stone that was cut without hands came rolling down from the mountain, struck this image in the feet, and the whole thing began to fall apart and collapse, turned to dust, and was blown away by the wind. And then this stone that was cut out of the mountain began to grow and grow, and grow, until it filled the whole earth, and uh, covered all of it. And somehow, God decided to give this vision, this revelation, to this ungodly king. We have it written down for us. But Daniel's interpretation was this. There's going to be a series of earthly kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar was the highest, and it get more and more uh, degenerated until the time it was a mixture. But he said, in the days of these kings, this other kingdom will be set up. And this other kingdom he talks about in Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom 
which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. There's a number of things to notice. We didn't take time to read the whole passage, but in the, even in this verse, human governments are by God's allowance, but the kingdom of God is God's real design. And God allows governments because we need them to keep order in the earth. But in the long scheme of things, it's a temporary arrangement. And the highest and the biggest and the best is the kingdom of God. And once that's established, it's forever. It will not be left to other people. It, uh, it will never be destroyed. A couple of things I think about. One is this, that this, this kingdom of God is independent from any earthly kingdom. Now, there have been times in the history of, of Christendom or uh, churched lands that the church and the state were quite close together and they could hardly imagine that the church would not be dependent on the state and the state on the church. But this is God's design. I don't believe that unfriendly governments can, co- can, can, can destroy it. I don't think friendly governments can coerce it. I think that um, the church of Christ, the, the true church of Christ exists uh, in friendly territory or in unfriendly territory because it's God's and he owns it. I believe the church of Christ today is probably stronger in North Korea and China and Iran than it is perhaps in our open society of the West. It definitely doesn't require government support to flourish. It transcends earthly governments. This is one that we haven't run into yet, but I'm sure we will. Throughout history, there's been this clash between the conscience of the kingdom and the governments of the world. There's been this ongoing collision between the two because government requires a certain thing and the conscience dictates something else. And by the way, that's one of the biggest legal things being challenged and fought about today in our land. And it's a continual battle. Daniel faced it. Was he going to have a dual allegiance in his life? Bow even temporarily to this or to the king, or is he going to stand for one God and one only? The three Hebrews faced it. The apostles faced it. The martyrs faced it. The Amish homeschoolers faced it. The Christian photographers faced it. The Christian bakeries faced it. And today, they've both been sued successfully by homosexual couples that wanted their service and didn't get it. And that's the land that we live in. But the one ongoing mark of the kingdom of God is simply this, that, that God's kingdom transcends earthly authority. and we are, Our allegiance is to Him because we belong to this kingdom. And at the end of time, all these earthly things will pass and only one kingdom will remain, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We need to understand something tonight that God's kingdom will not fail. This thing that He has purposed in His heart to do and has done and is doing on the earth He will get it done. And uh, it's going forward. It's victorious. It won't stop. It's overcoming. And sometimes we look at church life and we look at the the spiritual scene in our, our land and we think things are going backwards and things are slipping and we're losing. But it's not really that way because God doesn't lose. And uh, God won't fail no matter if I'm a part of it or not. He wants you to come along. He wants me to be there. But even if I decide, no, I won't, he's not going to fail. His kingdom will end successfully. And the reason it won't fail is because it doesn't depend on human initiative to make it happen. It doesn't depend on human resources. Money can't, or human resources aren't behind it. It's, it's the power and the promise of God behind it. And we can contribute these things, but God is in it. This kingdom that Christ came to set up is a spiritual kingdom. And I believe history has often given the world a wrong concept of what the church is supposed to be like. And uh, people look at history. People look at the way churches have run. Many people think of of the church as a political entity. Uh, It's a territory. It's, It's lines on a map. And everybody in these lines belong to this church. And everybody in that country belongs to that church. Uh, their parish limits. Some people think of church as a building. It's the church in the square in the center of a Guatemalan town. 
Some people think of church as an authority structure. The church says, and that's the pastors and the leaders and the bishops. Some people think of Christianity as a people group. I have a friend who's going to Iraq this month, and he explained to me in Kurdistan how this works. There's Yazidis, and there's Muslims, and there's Christians. And they get along with each other sort of okay. A Muslim doesn't care if you're a Christian, but he would really care if somebody converted from one to the other. And as long as it's a people group, it's fine. But if it becomes a spiritual conversion, that's something different. And that's what a lot of people look at is Christianity as a people group. So you have Christians in Syria fighting Muslims. And they're talking about people groups. When the world thinks of Christianity, it thinks of the Crusades. The Christians marching against the Turks and slaughtering them by the thousands. A couple of years ago, in Jerusalem, there was a couple of groups of Armenian priests, Greek Orthodox and Armenian priests, using the same temple, and uh, they got into some kind of argument about how to clean this thing, and they got into a broom fight. And these priests were fighting with brooms. This thing was televised and broadcast worldwide. And this is a picture of what Christianity is like in Jerusalem. But in Scripture, we get a very different picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus said this in Luke 17, verse 20. When he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you or among you. It doesn't come with banners. It doesn't come with fanfare. It doesn't come with force. It's not enforced by weapons. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the beauty of a spiritual kingdom, it knows no physical boundaries. You can't put lines on a map and say, this is Christendom and the rest is paganism. You can't draw a circle around, around a, a Christian territory. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an issue of the heart. It's not location. And our, our kingdom concept is based on a relationship with the king. That's, that's first of all how we understand the kingdom of God. And these laws that we have are God-given, not man-made. We have a scripture that was, that was uh, given by the Lord. And I believe wherever we find a man or a woman, or any person, with a submitted heart and a submitted will and a yielded lifestyle, that's where the kingdom of God is found. Because God has an authority structure. And when people decide they're going to say yes to that and come under that, that's where the kingdom of God is because there's a person under the lordship of Jesus living under the laws of heaven. And that's where the kingdom of God exists. Maybe you go to a new land and the kingdom of God isn't there yet. But when there's a one convert and one person coming saying yes to the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God is there. It's an extension of heaven's influence. It's a gift of God's spirit. There's evidence of Spirit's fruit in our lives, and that's what the kingdom of God consists of. The most beautiful thing about the kingdom is the king. Revelation describes the king as the king of kings and lord of lords. We could spend a long time studying the king, the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's majestic. He's all-powerful. He is beautiful. I believe in heaven. He is the center of attention. And when Revelation describes the worship scene, all the angels and all the, the redeemed around him singing to him, he's the center of worship, the focus of devotion. It's King Jesus. And I believe on earth, wherever God's kingdom is found, we worship him. We love him. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white. We have one thing in common. If we belong to the Lord, we love our king. He's a powerful king. I'd like to read a couple of verses in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 19. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. There's a lot in that. I don't understand all of this. In Hebrews it said, Jesus is the express image of God, which means the exact likeness. How can you get an exact likeness of an invisible thing? You can't take a picture of that. You can't take a video of that. That's not close enough. But when Jesus came, I believe he came as the essence of. And that reminds me of this stone. I look at it this way. The stone in the mountain and this piece that was cut out of it and came down and filled the earth is the same essence, is the same source, is the same stuff that forms this new kingdom. And that's what we see here. He's the creator. He is the head in the church. Head of all things. When we do church life, and we decide things, and we make choices, the central focus and the highest concern is the king. The most important relationship is the king. The approval we desire the most is his. And that's the foundation upon which church is built. Now what we know about God's or Jesus' majesty makes his humility so stunning. We see his power. We understand a little bit of that. His glory. We see pictures of that. But when Jesus came, he could have done it so differently. If he was actually a king like that, he could have, I'm sure he could have come with some display of energy and power and, and maybe some meteor showers or some uh, earthquakes or volcanoes or something spectacular to show that the king is coming. And uh, he didn't do it that way. And I believe Jesus came that way for a reason, because he's coming to start a new kingdom, a different kingdom, something totally different than anything people had seen before. Jesus was a unique king. His birth proved it. And forget the romanticized stable. We see pictures of this neat little germ-free place that has lots of hay and pretty things. And Instead, think of a freestall at Arimont. Uh, a little closer picture. You keep clean freestalls, I'm sure, Glenn, but there's real germs in there and there's, there's real smells in there and, and that's where Jesus chose to be born. It's cold and drafty. There's not much hay around. I don't know if they used hay back then or not. And here Jesus is lying where cows licked or maybe sheep. I believe God did that on purpose because He was showing what kind of kingdom is coming. It's a different one. His associations proved it. Jesus got along just fine with lepers and fishermen and publicans and sinners and lowly people. Didn't always jive so much with the Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers. His words proved it. His actions proved it. When they wanted to make a king of him and set him on high, he simply walked out of their midst and disappeared. He said, I'm among you as one who serves. He's the feet washer. When he came into Jerusalem, it says this in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. He did that on purpose, because he's a humble king of a humble kingdom. Most kings are high above their subjects. Jesus isn't. Most kings have no relationship and no friendship. They're out of touch with the people they're over. Jesus is different. In fact, Jesus requires a relationship with his subjects. You can't be a subject of Jesus and not have a relationship with him. And he invites us to that. And it's a life-giving relationship. He said, I am come to give life uh, for the bread of God is he which cometh from heaven to give life to the world. There's several pictures in the New Testament about how this works, but the most beautiful that I know is, is in John verse or chapter 15, where Jesus is emphasizing the personal relationship of this kingdom. And there's several pictures. I don't think we'll talk about them tonight, maybe later, but he pictures the kingdom of God like a vine. And there's one source, and there's a dependent relationship. And he gives two options. Verse 5 says, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. And then verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. 
And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Now Jesus is offering life to this world and there's two options. We either participate or we are cast out. We either have a dependent relationship on him or we're withered and dying and, and gone. And uh, that's how it works. Now in this kingdom, this kingdom has some principles. When Paul came to Thessalonica to preach, they said of Paul, those that turn the world upside down are come hither also. I think it's been rightfully returned, referred to as an upside down kingdom because the kingdom of God is so different than all the other kingdoms that people have known. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I guess we'll look at that a little bit, uh, some of the principles that he points out, principles of this new kingdom that are so different than any that ever been seen before. If you would get an army together, you would get a kingdom together, you would not think of these things. But Jesus did. And if you wonder what the rules of the kingdom are, Sermon on the Mount is a good place to start. It's full of them. Concepts of how this kingdom operates. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is so different than any other kingdom you've ever seen before. Look at poor in spirit. And look at President Obama's security team. Any other entourage of any important person. They don't pick out people like this. They pick out robust, self-confident, uh, self-assured kind of people. They're willing to take charge and push people around because they have something to take care of. If you're getting an army together, you'd want people like that. But Jesus said, my kingdom is different. The poor in spirit take part of my kingdom. When I think of poor in spirit, I think of somebody needy and dependent. And I had a person sleeping on my front porch for about three years in Guatemala that reminded me of this every morning. He would sleep there and lay out his cardboard at night and lay there and, and every morning, could I have some coffee? Do you mind making me an egg? And uh, so I'd cook him some breakfast and take it out there and come afternoon, could I have another cup of coffee? And, uh, all the time. What if we would live like that before God? I'm so needy. I can't survive without you. I'm, I'm a needy person. They then mourn. The meek. I saw a t-shirt one time that said, The meek shall inherit nothing. No fear. And it's possible that's true here in this, this place. The meek don't get very far here. But not in God's economy. It's different there because when I think of meekness, I don't think of weakness. I think of meekness, I think of power under control. I think of a horse that's trembling to run, but under the control of the bridle, the person on his back. I think of Moses of Egypt, energetic and powerful, but under the control of, of God. He learned to be meek. Jesus is looking for people like that. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. People are so driven. People work crazy hours. People do wild things because they have a goal in mind. Some of it's financial. Sometimes to improve their golf game. Sometimes it's to save up for something. I don't know what people are driven by. Some people are driven by elk hunting. I heard of a man that would go out there and into the wilds of somewhere in the west in sub-zero temperature and find a spot and bed down and hunker down for days at one spot, waiting, watching. He was driven. He was hungry. And here it says, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. God wants driven people, but driven by this. To know the Lord and to serve Him. And we, won't find, we usually find what we're after, but we won't find righteousness unless we hunger for it like this. Then it goes on, merciful peacemakers, pure in heart. But in Christ's kingdom, 
It's a kingdom of bowed hearts. It's a kingdom of people under the lordship of Christ. It goes on. There's more things we could say. Jesus in the next chapter in Matthew 6 points out the importance in this kingdom of secret things. He says, when you pray, or when you give, give in secret. Not like the Pharisees do. Ringing their bells or jingling their coins or whatever. Uh, this doesn't often happen. I did see it happen or heard of it happening one time. A brother held his offering up and then he put it in the basket. And he probably didn't know better, but he, uh, he was giving something. He just said, don't do it that way. Do it in secret. And I believe we could extend this warning to any kind of spiritual service we do. It's so easy to drop hints about what we're about. Yeah, we need to pray for so-and-so because uh, I stopped by and visited him the other day and he's, uh, you know, let people know what I've been doing. Uh, drop mention of our good things. Jesus said, let the Father know and that's enough. He knows. Don't worry about everybody else. So when you pray, do it in secret. Don't do it on the street corners. It's a wrong emphasis to use prayer to gain respect from people. That's the, not the point at all, he said. If we ever catch ourselves doing long prayers and prayer meetings and almost not praying at all in private, what does that say about our focus? Jesus could spend all night in prayer. And his longest recorded prayer is John 17 in public. His longest public prayer. You can read it in about three minutes. Uh, I, I think that should be our focus. Our, our, should be our, our pattern. I'd like to mentioned three aspects. We need, to, we need to pray. And we need to make it communion with God. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible to sit there with my Bible open and my eyes glazed and thinking about something so far away. My wife can see me kneeling by the chair, but she doesn't know if I'm praying or sleeping. Uh, it needs to be communication. Or it's not prayer. We need to mean it. Jesus said... Uh, Vain repetition doesn't make a difference. Religious words and memorized phrases might not mean much more to us than Hail Mary, Mother of God might mean to some people. I wonder sometimes if God doesn't respond to the words we say as much as the intensity in our heart when we're saying it. Uh, that's what he hears. He talks about fasting here. Fast in secret. And the point of all of this is simple. The result of a life that maintains an inner connection with God in private is rewarded openly. And that's where the kingdom of God works. The Father knows and that's enough. And He will reward us openly. And I believe He does that. And you can see a life that's walking with God not because He's talking about it, not because He's showing it off, but because there's evidences there that other people can see. There's a direct relationship there. Now, kingdom-mindedness has no substitute. The kingdom has a king. It has laws. It has subjects. And if you take this kingdom and take its subjects and reduce this concept down to, to one sentence, the basics, it'd be simply this. That kingdom people want to please the king and kingdom people want to be like the king. And there's no substitute for that. You can't reduce that down to do's and don'ts. You can't reduce that down to a set of regulations. You can't make a framework and say as long as you exist inside this, you'll be okay. If this inner relationship does not exist, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And we need to uh, keep this in the forefront of our minds. We make decisions. If I lose my desire to be like Jesus and to please Him, I'm not going to live right. It can't happen. Even if I am outwardly doing right. If I give because I have to, if I tithe down to the nickel and not a penny more, if I walk the edge of every decision, if I walk the lines of every line there is, if I push things, and if my spiritual life consists of what I do in public, in fact, if I make flesh-based decisions all my life, I'm worried about this sometimes. For us, we who call ourselves kingdom-minded people, 
But the context and the basis for most of the things we decide is, do I like it or don't I? Think about your music choices, for instance. How, what percent of your music choice is based on, I like this? What percent of your other choices are based on, this feels good? If we, if we decide based on that, most of our life not going to take us to a good place. Not if we're kingdom-minded people. We can't do it that way. If this is my life, I've missed the point and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Discipleship is being like Him. I, I saw a bumper sticker today. It said this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Think about that. I hope they don't say that about you. You know why they say that about people? It's because what they profess and what they do are so far apart. One person in India said of the missionaries or people that came, you make such high claims, but you live such ordinary lives. That should not be the story of a disciple of Christ. Let no one say that about you. I'd like to close by going to, uh, let's see, Matthew 25. Jesus said that many will cry, Lord, Lord. And many will claim kingdom citizenship. God said to Samuel these words when he was anointing David. He said, The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And when God and man look at something, they always see two different things. Because God sees the inside and man sees the outside. Now hopefully, if we are sincere people, there's a very close connection between what's inside and what's outside. But God sees things differently than we often see them. And I believe when God, when Jesus comes again, and he looks at the whole expanse of earth, and he gave us this parable to help us understand it, he said when, when he comes to take the wheat and the tares, he's going to make a difference at that point. They grew up together, they lived together, but there's a distinction from the roots and he separates among them. And in this parable here in Matthew 25, the, the time is up. The translation is here. And the kingdom of, of heaven on earth and the kingdom in heaven are going to be united. And there's going to be a coming together, a calling out. There's a few things to notice in this passage as we reflect on our lives and our relationship to the kingdom of God. I'm going to take the time to read this. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them are wise and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And the first thing I notice in this passage is not the differences between these ten people. I now notice the similarities. We're talking about God knowing His when He comes to take His kingdom with Him and translate it. There's some similarities here. They're all virgins. They all had a profession. They all had some kind of godliness. They all had kept themselves. And on the outside, they looked all the same. They were all waiting for the same bridegroom. They all sat out there together. Beside the road, they had the same expectation. Each one of them Hope that that night they would be celebrating a wedding with this bridegroom. They all had a lamp. They all had the ability to make a light. Uh, they all slumbered. They all slept. All ten of them slept. All ten of them woke up. All trimmed their lamps. But the difference was finally noticed when the king came. When the bridegroom came. Some had oil and some didn't. Some had light and some didn't. Some were part, some were not. 
Notice something here as well. Oil is not shared between believer and believer. This spirit of grace that must fill our life as we're part of this kingdom only has one source. You can't get it from anywhere else except, except the Lord Himself. And some of them said to the others, go back to the street. There's a place back there that sells all night. Go buy some. And uh, if your light isn't shining, please don't come to me for it because I need all the grace I can get. If you need grace, you go home to your closet and get it. That's where to find it. Notice this. There's never, it's never enough to walk in the light of other people. Down in Guatemala, sometimes poor people would walk in the dark and conserve their batteries. Uh, if there's a group of people walking, they don't, they're not like us Americans. We have big flashlights and we, we all have our flashlights on. This is my light. This is my battery. I'm shining around everywhere on a city. And they don't do it that way. If one person has it on, the rest keep theirs off. Sometimes they flick down the path a little bit and turn it back off and walk as far as they've seen and flick it back on again for a while. In a large congregation, sometimes it's easy to think I'm shining because everybody else around me is, is doing well. It's to hide the fact that I'm not glowing. But when the bridegroom comes, what's he looking for? He's looking for a reality of inner life, divine life, connection to the vine, kingdom participation in each person. The difference between the inner life and the outer life is quite distinct in this passage. The outer life was what everybody else could see. The inner life was what only the Lord sees. And that's a key part of being part of the kingdom of God. And that makes all the difference. One of my biggest concerns about a vital inner life is simply this. If I'm living in a way that is not real, if I'm pretending to be a part of a kingdom that I'm not really a part of because I don't follow the king. I'm not under his authority. I'm not living as a subject to his laws. It can go on okay for a while, but when it comes to the end, and when I die, there's going to be a stripping away of everything everybody else saw and a complete exposure of what only God can see. And whatever was out there, and whatever people saw, whatever facade or image, it'll be just dissolved and blown away. And the only thing left it's what God saw, and that becomes my, my only reality, my new identity for the rest of eternity. That's why it's so important to know where we stand in the kingdom of God. And we're invited. There's a kingdom, there's a king. We can take part in this thing. The door is open. And uh, may we make sure we're on the inside of this.